I do want to touch on a question that I was asked yesterday uh, during the question and answer session, but I'm going to hit it later regarding those that have never heard. Uh, Pastor Bryant came up and spoke with me and just clicked my mind that I already had in my notes for today the passage that you brought up, Mike, which I appreciate very much. But uh, anyway, if you would open with me to the book of Daniel, we've been looking at God's plan for human history. Right now, if you're aware at all, it must seem to you, certainly seems to me, like the world has gone crazy. And it seems like it's going more and more crazy every day. Um, and it is true from a human standpoint that the people in control, if you can call it control, have lost their minds. The world has gone insane. However, it doesn't matter how much people try to derail the plan. God is in control. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is in total control of the direction things are going. Now, we can either buy into the insanity and the calamity of the way the world's going to our own destruction, or we can live separate lives. And one of the things that I always appreciate so much when I come to this church is just seeing the young people, uh, seeing young men and young women uh, that are growing straight and true and honest and innocent to a lot of the evil that is out there in the world. And I truly pray that there are going to be some heroes of the faith that are going to come up. This is a time, you know, times of crisis, times of historical calamity are always times when <clears throat> the real heroes are made. So I believe that there are going to be some heroes that are going to be coming from this group, and uh, we're very honored to be with you. <clears throat> we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7 to begin with. Uh, we'll do a very quick review, and then we'll look at several different passages. So if you would, let's just once more approach the throne of grace. Let's take a moment of silent prayer as we examine ourselves and make sure that we've cleared the decks of our mind and our soul. You know, we live in a busy world. We live in a very cluttered world. It's very easy for us to come to the teaching of God's Word and gathering together under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's very easy to be distracted by needs and demands, concerns, desires, whatever they may be. We need to put all of that aside. So in a moment of silence, take up the broom of the Holy Spirit and sweep the floors of your soul. Let's get rid of the clutter. Let's make sure there are no unconfessed sins in our life. You never know driving in here. One of the greatest places to get out of fellowship is on the road. And uh, it's very easy for it to happen in a moment of time. And then we just ignore it and move on. Don't let little sins clutter your soul during the time that we're here to grow in grace. So a moment of silence, then I'll pray. We'll get into Daniel chapter 7. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that your word says that if we would examine ourselves and if we would judge ourselves, we would not need to be judged. 
What a marvelous privilege it is that if we confess our sins, we know that you are always faithful and just. You never tire of forgiving us our sins and cleansing us of all unrighteousness. We know that as a result of that, we are equipped by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to actually enter into true fellowship, walking in the light as you are in the light and having fellowship and fruitfulness in our life. So, Father, clear the decks of our souls. <clears throat> we pray with the words of David, wash us and make us clean, cleanse us, and we will be whiter than snow. Search us and see if there be any evil way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. May your word come alive to us this morning as God the Holy Spirit pours your omnipotent power into the truth that we're about to study. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the gist of our study over the last couple of days has been the plan of God in human history, particularly under the title of After These Things. What's going to happen next is a question that we all often ask. But we can't see where we're going unless we know where we are. And so a very quick review, if uh, you have been here during those classes, we would begin with the question, where are we? And your answer would be, students, we're in the birth pang stage. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. We are in the time of increasing upheaval nationally, internationally, geopolitically, uh, environmentally, every way that you can think about. We are in increasing upheaval in the time in which we live. So the next question would be, what happens after this? And you would say, the rapture of the church. And could you think of some passages that would teach you and convince you and possibly others that the rapture of the church must occur before the tribulation? Well, you might think of Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 24, where I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself. And this, of course, matches 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be. If we want to show convincingly that the rapture must occur before the tribulation period, we would then move on to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which tells us the day of the Lord will not overtake us as a thief because God will deliver us from the coming wrath. We could also move to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we find convincingly that before the appearance of the Son of Man, the Lord will return and we will be gathered together to Him. And we could go on and on. So we look forward to the rapture, but as we uh, deal with the reality and the blessedness of the rapture, our blessed hope, Paul calls it, we would then ask the question, what happens next? What happens after the rapture? And you would say, the tribulation period. And we looked at the tribulation period. The Lord Jesus gives us an outline in Matthew 24. After the birth pangs comes tribulation. In the middle of the tribulation comes the abomination of desolation, the appearance, the revelation of Antichrist, 
and the time that he will be indwelt by Satan, and then the world enters into the last three and a half years, and Jesus calls it great tribulation. Tribulation, abomination, great tribulation, and then what happens after that? After that, we have the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. And so we looked at different passages that show us the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in judgment. Isaiah 63, who is this that comes from Edom with blood-spattered garments? It is the Lord Jesus Christ walking as a mighty victorious warrior across the face of this earth. We looked at Revelation chapter 19. We saw the Lord returning with the armies of heaven. The armies of heaven are going to include both angelic and resurrected church age saints. And we're going to come and we're going to participate in the ultimate victory of the battle of Armageddon. Jesus will then judge the nations. Uh, we saw this in Matthew 24, separating the sheep and the goat nations based on their faith in him and the resulting effect that it had on how they treated the remnant of Israel. So we have the tribulation down, and of course we could go to um, Revelation chapter 6, which gives us a very quick overview of the entire uh, tribulation period. So what happens after the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation? And you would say the millennium. Uh, the millennium is a uh, term that comes from the idea of 1,000 in the Greek. The word is for a thousand years, and several passages, of course, convince us of a thousand years. You can go back and review your notes. Those of you that haven't been with us, I think there are still quite a few notes back there if you want all the notes. I think there's 20, I don't know, maybe 24, 25 pages of notes altogether put together to save you all the work, all the sweat, all the agony and anxiety of having to work all of this out for yourself. You see how good I am to you. It's like your little children in first and second grade, and I'm doing your math for you. So we have a thousand years of perfect environment, perfect peace. Jesus Christ reigning over the world. King David reigning from Jerusalem over the remnant of Israel. A thousand years without pain, without suffering, without sorrow, there will be death. The Old Testament prophets spoke of a man who would die at a hundred years being considered a little child. But the only reason for death in the millennium is judgment on sin. People will still have sin natures. We won't. We'll be in resurrected bodies. But those who come out of the tribulation, those who reproduce and have children, those folks are still going to have sin natures. And Jesus is going to deal with sin with a rod of iron. And that means when people step out of line, they are going to be dealt with, providing, of course, that it's a capital sin. And so a thousand years of seeing Jesus reigning, a thousand years of perfect peace, a thousand years of the world returned like the Garden of Eden, and then what's going to happen after that? We know there's going to be a revolt. Millions and millions of people are going to revolt against Jesus Christ. For a thousand years, Satan has been in prison uh, no satanic influence or deception on the world, and he is released 
for a little time. Do you know why God would release the devil? You may ask why after he's been chained up for a thousand years, would God release him? Because God is fair. God always gives men choices. He always gives us the right to make decisions. And if they have rejected Jesus Christ, they have to have the opportunity to choose the other option, and that is to follow Satan. And of course, that revolt is going to be put down with fire from heaven in a moment of time. It'll be the quickest victory, the bloodiest battle that the world has ever seen. And then we have <clears throat> the resurrection of all unsaved people, and we have what we call the great, or what John calls the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is a judgment of all unbelievers. Unbelievers are not going to be judged because of their sins. The reason is because of the law of double jeopardy. Their sins have already been judged. Their sins were judged on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about the wrath of God, but we don't often think of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for the sins of every member of the human race. And so when the white throne judgment takes place, the issue is not sin. The issue is human good. Their human good is going to be brought up from the book of their deeds. It's going to be compared to the righteousness of Christ. It's going to fulfill the principle of Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, and they will fall to their knees and confess with their tongue, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. God doesn't send people to hell. All people will send themselves to the lake of fire. They'll acknowledge their unworthiness. They'll acknowledge the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. And on the basis of their own confession, they will enter into the lake of fire. So that shows us certainly a different picture of the character and the nature of God. So now we're in Daniel, and the question is, after the great white throne judgment, what happens next? And the answer is new heavens and a new earth. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of commentary this morning. We're going to go through a few passages of Scripture. Each of them comments on the other. Uh, scripture really interprets Scripture. Many times our problem in understanding Scripture is that we haven't studied enough of the Scriptures that deal with the same topic. We haven't put enough of the pieces of the puzzle together. That's why we study categorically. That's why we study doctrinally, so that we can pull many passages together as pieces of the puzzle, and we begin to see at least a partial view of the picture that God wants us to see. So here we are in Daniel, and Daniel has a vision. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. We saw that uh, just yesterday in Revelation, so parallel passages. The Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. These are signs of purity and holiness. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. The throne here is almost like a chariot, <clears throat> and the symbolism of the flames and the fire is judgment. Understand this, you cannot have holiness and not have judgment. As a matter of fact, shocking as it may be to many people who have a very fluffy uh, and a, a very indistinct view of what love is, you cannot have love without judgment. 
At the cross, the love of God and the wrath of God met and were satisfied, and they worked in perfect harmony to judge your sins and my sins and to provide for each and every one of us the opportunity to have eternal life. So both holiness and judgment, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Again, cross-reference that with what we saw yesterday in Revelation 20. Then he says, uh, if you just skip down in verse 11 and 12, uh, he has some reference to Antichrist and his boasts. But dropping down to verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. You may wonder why the Lord Jesus uh, always used this as a title for himself. People say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, son of man is a term for the second member of the Godhead from Daniel chapter 7. And what he was trying to do every time he would use the title, the son of man, was to get someone to open their Bible and look back to Daniel chapter 7 and find out who he is. But of course, none of the Pharisees were smart enough to do that. So one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. We saw this in Revelation chapter 6, as he took up the six seals and began to open the seals. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. One of the questions that came to me yesterday, and I don't remember if it was in the question and answer session or just an individual that came up to me was, after the millennium, and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, does the kingdom continue in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, we just got our answer. That kingdom is going to be eternal. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to be the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, which we'll see here in a moment, and that kingdom is going to be established forever, and we who believe are going to be a part of that kingdom. So let's learn a little more about that kingdom by turning in our Bibles to Revelation. Go with me to the book of Revelation chapter 21. We saw in chapter 20, Satan bound and then Satan released and then the great white throne judgment. And now we begin in Revelation 21, an eternal home for all who believe. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the first, or first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, this makes some people sad. I have a son in Australia who loves to surf, and it would make him very sad to think that there is a world with no sea. But you need to understand that the word thalasso is a word that refers to salt sea. And so, uh, it doesn't indicate that there's not going to be an ocean. It just indicates that if there is an ocean, it will not be a salt ocean. Uh, it will be a fresh water. I think there are other reasons for this indication. It's actually a figurative because the sea has always been seen as a symbol of unstable mankind, of rebellious and chaotic 
mankind. You'll remember in Revelation 13, when Antichrist comes up, he comes up as a beast out of the sea. It's like the sea is raging, and out of this raging sea comes the beast. Going back to the Old Testament, you see many passages in the Psalms, in Ezekiel, that talk about God defeating the sea monster. Well, that sea monster is personified uh, in Satan as he indwells Antichrist and leads the tumult of the nations against the people of God. So don't cry about the ocean. I think it'll still be there. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. You'll remember Paul makes quite a point out of the fact that we are children of the New Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 4, you can go back and read that, and it'll add to your understanding here. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This is your eternal home if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The reason that the city is identified as the bride is because the city is the home of the bride. I mentioned yesterday that when... The book of Revelation says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That doesn't include you. You're not invited. Did you know that? Do you know why you're not invited? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're the bride. You don't send out invitations to the bride to come to her own wedding. It's her wedding, right? So this is our eternal home. I heard a loud voice in verse 3 from the throne, the same throne we just saw in Daniel 7, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I want each and every one of you, there is not a person in this room that doesn't have the scars and the wounds of life. We all carry the bruises, we all carry the wounds, we all carry the scars of life. Sometimes we can forget them for a while, sometimes we can get distracted from them, but you don't go through life without being wounded. And you may be here this morning, or someone may be hearing this message as it goes out across the airwaves, who is dealing with a broken heart, who is dealing with great sorrow. I want you to understand something. Earth has no wound that heaven can't heal. People by the millions are committing suicide, particularly in the Western countries. People in India, Africa, and Asia don't commit suicide. Do you know why? Because they are fighting to survive. They are fighting every day to have enough to eat. They're fighting every day to uh, not be exposed to extreme elements. They're fighting every day to escape from the dangers of the world in which they live. Much, much more dangerous in many parts of the world than it is here. Our dangers are subtle. Their dangers are brutal. And they fight to survive. But in our countries, people lose hope. People lose a sense of purpose. They lose a sense of their identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? I think there was a song about that one time addressed to Alfie. And because they lose hope and they lose an anchor in life, they take their own life. If only they knew, if only there was someone to tell them there is healing for your hurt, there is healing for your wounds, and it's going to be taken away forever, and you will never 
shed a tear again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Do you realize that when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things become new. It links to this passage because what it's telling you is as far as you're concerned, that new creation has already started. It's already begun in you. Why? Because you are now a new creature in Christ. You are a part of the new creation that isn't even here yet. There is a creation that is coming that is perfectly designed for the new you that God has created. And tragically, too many Christians haven't even discovered who the new them really is. See, I'm using all the right pronouns, right? I want you to notice this, verse 5. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We love new things, don't we? New clothes, new shoes, new cars. You know, when something's new, it's, it's not just that it's fresh off the factory floor. It's the fact that it's new to us. It's a new experience. It's a new possession, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a new relationship. We love new things. Can you imagine living in a world where every day was a new day? And we sometimes say that every day is a new day, but sometimes every day is just a new day of the same old sorrow of the day before. Imagine a world that was constantly new, Imagine a world, if I could just use the analogy or the illustration, you wake up in the morning and you look out and you see the world as you've never, ever seen it before. All of this was anticipated in the Old Testament in Lamentations chapter 3 in the midst of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem as he watched the young men and women led away with chains around their necks in the death march to Babylon. Jeremiah poured out his heart and his grief and his anguish to God and he literally screamed to the heavens about the suffering that he was going through. And then suddenly the Spirit of God brought to his mind a realization that God is still in control and he has a plan and a purpose. And he began to record for us <clears throat> those beautiful words in Lamentation chapter 3, about verse 22, 23. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And you know what happened? The ones that got led away in the death march were the fortunate ones. They were the ones that ended up Princes and nobles, they were the ones who God was protecting. Sometimes the worst thing that happens in your life is God's protection from something that is really bad. Nothing can touch you, my friend, if you're a child of God, that God does not give permission. You have a hedge of protection around you of a multitude of angels, and there is nothing that can touch you without the permission of God. We learn that from the book of Job. So when he says, behold, I am making all things new. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. 
every hurt, every wound, every pain, every anguish, every sorrow that every soul feels on this earth. You know what it is? It's nothing but an expression of a desire and a thirst for the water of life. Sin brings death. Death brings sorrow and suffering. But the Lord Jesus Christ offers to all who will come to him the water of life freely. I hope that you have drank and continue to drink from that water. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, and I hope you don't fall into this category, for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, for those of us who believe we get a second birth, for those who don't believe they get a second death. And that second death is eternal, unending, dying in the lake of fire. I'm going to end it at that point, and I'm going to move on into Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to have to hurry, or I'm going to run out of time here. Revelation 22, he continues revealing to us what it's going to be like in this new creation. Revelation 22.1, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of the Lamb of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Take all of the people of the world, all of the tribes, all of the languages, all of the various ethnic groups of the world, combine all of the hurt, the sorrow, the suffering that they have, and where do we come back to? We come back to where we began, the Garden of Eden and the opportunity to eat of the tree of life. Have you ever thought what the world would be like? Here are Adam and Eve in the garden. And this beautiful garden has in the middle of the garden, conveniently, two trees. The tree of life, which had they eaten it, there would have never been sin, there would have never been suffering, the world would have gone on into this creation right here. I mean, they could have skipped the misery of human history as we know it and just gone right into the beautiful existence of this marvelous place. But instead of choosing the tree of life, they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you realize that when you have the knowledge of good and evil, the only way to learn it is by experiencing it? <clears throat> Wouldn't it be nice if all you ever knew was good? If all of your life was always good? If everything that happened to you was always good? The only way you can have the knowledge of good and evil is you have to have the contrast, and that means you have to experience the evil. And that's what came into the world as a result of that choice. I want you to notice something else. This may surprise you. Do you notice that it says it yields its fruit every month? This is in eternity. Have you ever thought that in eternity there is still an element of time? How can it yield its fruit every month if we're not measuring time in eternity? 
we're still going to have months. I think months are made up of days. I'm not so sure, but I think days are made up of hours and hours of minutes and minutes of seconds, and they're still going to be somehow in a dimension that we can't even comprehend right now, time without time. I'll let you play with that one for a while. Notice that it says in verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead. The most beautiful cosmetic that any of you ladies will ever put on is to put on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will no longer be any night. I said a while ago you would sleep and wake up in the morning, but... I don't know, I felt like I didn't sleep last night. I don't know why, but there will no longer be any night and they will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. He said to me, and I want you to hear this, these words are faithful and true. You can choose to believe it or you can choose to reject it, but it is an absolute certainty from the omnipotence of God. He will bring it to pass. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show to His bondservants the things which are going to take place after these things. You know what that verse implies to me? The new heavens and the new earth are the fulfillment of every promise of every prophet from the beginning to the end of history all of them completely and perfectly fulfilled. Now, in your notes, I have Isaiah 60, and you can go back to that at some point and read through it. We don't have the time, but I want you to turn with me to the last passage we're going to look at, 2 Peter chapter 3, a marvelous and a beautiful passage in the little book, 2 Peter. 2 Peter, considered by many scholars to be one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, books to interpret. By the way, no book uh, written in the New Testament has been attacked as to its authorship or authenticity as much as 2 Peter. I'll just put your hearts at rest. 2 Peter wrote, wrote it. Don't worry about it. It is inspired scripture. Notice as we pick up the thought of that new heaven and new earth, verse 7 says, By His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. This world is doomed for fire. The works of this world are doomed for fire. It is being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Uh, I will not belabor the fact, but if you're here this morning or if you're listening to this on the airwaves as it goes out, you need to understand if you're without Christ, your eternal destiny is flame that will never be extinguished. You have no hope. You have no life. You have no escape. Deceive yourself as you will. Plug your ears and whistle past the graveyard. Do whatever you want to do. Get distracted by all of the foolish things that you can be distracted with. Destroy your soul by all of the uh, means that are available in this world. You are going to end up without Christ in the lake of fire forever and ever. We don't hear that much anymore. You want to be an atheist? Be an atheist. 
you will one day fall to your knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every atheist will one day acknowledge with his own mouth, with his own mind, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. But here's the tragedy. They'll do it too late. There is no escape. There is no alternative. Believe in Buddha if you want to. He's dead and in hell. Follow him if you want to. You'll end up where he is. The tombs of all the religious leaders of all of history are full with the bones of those who are dead and will die again in the second death. There's only one tomb that's empty, and that is the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because death could not hold him. The grave could not hinder him. He rose and walked out of his own tomb for your sake. He went to the cross and died for your sake. He paid the penalty for your sins. And this is one of the things that's going to cause people to fall to their knees and acknowledge when they realize that a just, righteous, and holy God doesn't even hold them accountable for all their sins because Jesus Christ paid the penalty and they rejected that payment. That will be the most terrifying moment of their life. And so, he says in verse 8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. When Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, the mockers say, and Peter deals with this earlier, where is the promise of His coming? It's been 2,000 years. What a joke. He hasn't come back. Listen, in the economy of God, in the mind of God, it's only been two days. A day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. And He will be back. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you know why Christ hasn't come back? Because those of you who still reject His Spirit is still dealing, convicting, pleading with you, don't put it off, don't delay, don't imperil your soul for all eternity. Today is the day of salvation, and you harden your heart, and you seal your ears, and you turn your back, and you stiff-arm God, and one day you'll stand there, and you'll have to acknowledge, it's my fault. I chose to reject. I chose not to believe. I chose to spurn the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, when I felt that little conviction in my conscience saying, you are a sinner, there is a holy God, and hell is coming, and you shut it out of your mind, and you closed your ears, and you went your way, and hell is drawing near. Why does God delay? God is not willing... <clears throat> As Mike pointed out yesterday, this is translated, God is not wishing, as if God's sitting up there saying, oh, I wish they would all believe. <clears throat> the word is not wishing. It's from the Greek word bulimai. It's the strongest possible word for the absolute determination of God that by any means necessary, short of violating your free will, He will bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is not His plan. It is not his purpose that any person go to hell. And so he delays, and he waits, and he pleads, and the Spirit works, and men like myself stand up and appeal to the souls of hardened 
cynical, atheistic, unsaved people. And what do we get for it? Mocking and scorn and contempt and sometimes persecution. It's all right. It'll all be made right in the end. Notice verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How long did I tell you the day of the Lord is? A hundred, a thousand and seven years. We looked at it yesterday from its beginning. That's the beginning of the tribulation period. Go through seven years of tribulation, a thousand years of millennium, creation of a new heaven and new earth. Now you're in the day of the Lord. Notice, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Here's the point that Peter wants us to get. By all of this universal cataclysm, what should we learn? Verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How do we define godliness? It's very simple. We have a very clear definition. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh. Christ likeness, Christ conformity. You're never going to measure up 100%. You're not being compared to somebody else. God has a unique plan for your life. He has a purpose for you. And His desire is to begin molding you. He already started by giving, putting you at the head of the class. You're a new creature in Christ. The new creation is already there, created in righteousness and holiness. Now comes the opportunity to grow in grace, to fulfill His plan, to accomplish the purpose for which you are placed on this earth. And the more that happens, the more godliness is reflected in your life. Notice verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Let me point out something very interesting to you. You can hurry up the Lord's coming if you want. Looking for, longing for, and hastening. You say, how can we hasten it? Well, what is the reason for the delay? The reason for the delay is God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And therefore, if we're working in a partnership with God, we need to get involved in hastening the coming of that day by hastening the fulfillment of why the delay exists and how can we do that. Let me suggest a few things to you. Number one, by your prayers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a believer priest, and you should be interceding for your unsaved friends, neighbors, and relatives. The more you pour out your heart to them and work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit as He convicts them, you are hastening the coming of Jesus Christ. Number two, be a faithful witness. Open your mouth. Live out your life. This is why Peter says, what kind of people ought we to be? Our conduct, our character should reflect the person of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't always have to open our mouth. We should have people able to look at us and say, there's a Christian. Have you ever had someone say, you're a Christian, aren't you? You know, it's easy in India because everybody in India looks like they're totally lost and there's the lights on or but nobody's home. And then you see people going about their lives as harsh and difficult and painful as it is, and they're smiling and they're cheerful. And you say, there's a Christian. You can tell. 
Let's live out our lives in such a way and speak out and be a witness. Number three, don't just intercede on behalf of people. Don't just witness to people. Start supporting a mission. Pick a mission that you're going to pray for. Pick some of your missionaries on that board. And when they come up for that month, make it your commitment that you are going to pray for them every day that month. You have no idea what a difference it could make if you hung a little thing on your fridge and every time you looked at it, you prayed for that missionary. It would take you maybe 10 or 15 seconds. I even heard of one missionary organization that were asking people for a commitment, not of money, but of 15 seconds. Can you give me 15 seconds each day to just mention us before the throne of grace? You say, well, why pray? God's going to do whatever He's going to do, whether we pray or not. God has called man into partnership with Him, and He works in conjunction with our prayers. You fail to pray for things, and those things may never be. Don't take a fatalistic attitude to the Christian way of life. Don't take a deterministic attitude to the Christian way of life. So let's intercede for people, pray for people, witness to people, live our lives before people, support mission work, and get involved in it. And Peter says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now we've seen the day of Christ. That happens in the twinkle of an eye. That is the rapture of the church. We've seen the day of the Lord now from beginning to end. That is the beginning of the tribulation clear up to the end of the millennium and the end of judgment. That is the day of the Lord. Now we're looking at the day of God. The day of God lasts forever. Isn't that amazing? One day is a split second. One day is a thousand seven years. And one day is going to last forever. And that is the new creation and new heavens and new earth that are going to go on forever. Because of which he says the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. <clears throat> Excuse me. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, and I hope you are, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, <clears throat> and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Why does he delay salvation? Redemption is his central purpose. The cross is the center of human history. Salvation of lost souls is the unending burden and thought of God. He goes on to say, even as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, remember Peter is writing here to scattered Jewish believers. He says here that Paul wrote them an epistle. Like all of his letters, he says, speaking of things that are hard to understand, <clears throat> I could say that about Peter too which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures. Several things are happening here. Number one, the author just identified the author of the book of Hebrews. If Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, who did? If Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, where is the epistle that Peter is talking about that Paul wrote to Jewish believers? If Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, we're missing a book of scripture. Somehow God lost control. So I take it that the only book that he could be referring to is the epistle to the Hebrews. And he talks about the fact that this wisdom was given to the Apostle Paul 
so that he could challenge us with regard to our Christian lives. In your notes, if you have notes, you have the doctrine of new things at the bottom of page 23. I want to hit on a few of those very quickly just to refresh our memories. <clears throat> Revelation 21.5, we just read it. Behold, thank you very much. I make all things new. You know, it's morning, uh, early morning, combination of coffee, whatever. Sometimes we just need a lube job. Behold, I make all things new. Is his proclamation of victory over Satan, his promise in the face of the rebellion of mankind, and his power to work ultimate good out of all evil. That one statement could occupy our minds for a long, long time. <clears throat> the victory of the new over the old began with the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah saw it in a vision, Jeremiah 31, 22. The Lord has created a new thing in the earth. What is it? A woman shall encompass a man. You know, a woman can't encompass a man by herself. A woman can't conceive by herself. But God is going to create a new thing, Jeremiah says, and it happened with the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that new thing was the beginning of all new things. New things, by the way, are not of this earth. <clears throat> this prophecy of Jeremiah is recorded in the same chapter as the prophecy promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 34. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, <clears throat> when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. How's that for something new? How marvelous to know that your sins are forgiven, not just the ones in the past, but all the ones that you'll commit in the future. Past, present, and future sins forgiven. Again, I plead with you for here. We are drawing very near to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the pieces on the playing board are in place. The Antichrist is already on the scene, behind the scenes. The nations of the world have already abdicated their responsibility and their independence. We are now living in a world that the world has not seen since Genesis 10 and the building of the Tower of Babel. You're living in one of the most astounding times in human history. And you don't have much time if you're without Christ. The door is slowly closing on any opportunity you'll ever have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the new beginning is, or the new covenant is, of course, the beginning of the new creation. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 5.17 and the fact that when you trust in Christ, you become a new creature. Only when we're born again by faith can we begin to realize that in the midst of sin, sorrow, and sufferings of this world, God's grace provisions are renewed to us every day. I paraphrased Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 a few moments ago. God's mercies, God's grace, and His gracious provisions are renewed every day. Now, some of you are bored with life. Some of you are jaded by life. I'm not talking to anybody individually. I'm just saying in a group like this. 
I know people. I've dealt with people all my life. You know, I grew up in a youth home. You know, my folks ran a youth ranch. In addition to our 10 kids, we sometimes had 20 or more living with us. We had kids who came from parents who molested them. We had kids who came to us who had been raped. We had kids who came to us that had been brutally beaten. And me as a member of the family had to receive these boys and girls as brothers and sisters. And by the way, that wasn't pleasant. That didn't mean we treated them nice. We treated them like family. You know how family treats family. <clears throat> Welcome to the family, we'd say. And the testing would begin. You didn't come to the youth ranch without being tested. We wanted to find out what your metal was. We wanted to find out what made you tick. We wanted to find out what you could do. How responsible were you? And once you identify the deficiencies in a person's character, and Jed and I were talking about this with regard to uh, military leadership, you have to identify the deficiencies of a person's character before you can fix them. Which is why I said some of you are jaded with life. And until you lay hold of the hope that is set before you, I'll make you a promise. Life is only going to get worse. And it's going to get worse rapidly. And it's going to get worse brutally in the days ahead. You're living in a nation that is in the process of collapse. You're living in a nation that is moving rapidly to tyranny. I got one minute here. Some of you are glad. At the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. There is going to be something so new and spectacular about our first celebration of the Lord's table in the kingdom. And I believe it will be a part of the wedding celebration of the bride and the lamb. And Jesus is looking forward to something new. A new time with you and I in the kingdom of God. If we learn to live in the expectation of the new creation as Jesus and the heroes of faith did, we will one day be possessors of a new name. How'd you like to have a new name? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, John says in Revelation 2.17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written that no one knows except him. Say, so what good is a name that you're the only one that knows? Well, the implication here is it's a pet name between you and your Savior. You know, husbands often have pet names for their wives. Young men meet a young lady, fall in love with her, they come up with a special name and you know they may share it with others but sometimes it's personal and it's private why because it indicates an intimacy between those two that no one else can share wouldn't it be wonderful to have that with the most loving person that ever walked the face of the earth wouldn't it be something to have a pet name from the lord jesus christ you say how can i get it you have to be an overcomer and who is an overcomer john says who is he that overcomes but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. This is that which overcomes the world, even our faith. I hope that we will all wake up and be vigilant and alert 
for the privilege and the opportunity that exists for us living in this most amazing time of human history because we are history makers. One day the record of our lives is going to be on display for all to see. I hope your record is a good one. Let's pray. Father, how marvelous for us to look forward to the new things that you have for us. And once again, I just thank you for Pastor Chris, for the entire staff of the church, for the people who have welcomed us and made us so comfortable, given us an opportunity to mingle with them, to fellowship with them, to open your word together. Father, how I pray that God the Holy Spirit, and I pray this with confidence, knowing that God the Holy Spirit will take the words that have been spoken, the notes that have been distributed, and you are going to continue to use those until the day that Jesus Christ comes to claim us, and even on into the tribulation period, the ripples of the time we've spent together this weekend are going to continue going out. How I pray that one day there will be those speaking the names of people who are here saying that person impacted someone, that person said something, that person wrote something, and that is why in the midst of a world of flame and a world that is descending into the pit of hell, that is why I have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let our desire and anticipation in this regard be true for not only those who have now believed, but maybe for some who are teetering on the edge, who may yet trust Jesus Christ and begin to live a life that will have an impact that will go all the way into eternity. Father, thank you for your grace, mercy, and love. Thank you for our Savior who sacrificed everything in order that we might be returned and reunited with you and a part of your family. Let us continue to rejoice moment by moment and day by day. For we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.